We are all, at least somewhat, like the two travelers on the road to Emmaus that Luke tells of in Acts of the Apostles. Late in the day on that first Easter Sunday, two of Jesus' friends began to walk from Jerusalem to their home in the village of Emmaus. It was only about seven miles. But when you're feeling sad, that's a long, long walk home. They are in shock, confusion, and grief. As they talk, they keep going over and over and over again everything that had happened since Jesus' awful betrayal and arrest on Thursday night. On this road to Emmaus, they talk about how they had thought Jesus was the one. But now, with his ugly death, all their hope has come to nothing. Then a stranger, Jesus, whom they don't recognize, overtakes them and begins to walk with them. What I am thinking is that maybe this suggests a helpful way of learning the identity of the stranger from Nazareth. To just meet the stranger as a stranger, noting only the, the simplest and most basic clues to his identity. Near the end of the 18th century, scholars began an attempt to discover who Jesus was as a historical figure, a person apart from any supernatural or theological assertions, or as sometimes it is put, who was the real Jesus? This enterprise, this surge, is known as the quest for the historical Jesus. However, after nearly 250 years, it has become more and more obvious that the so-called quest for the historical Jesus, for the real Jesus, is an exercise in futility. Part of the reason for this is that the earliest and most extensive accounts of the life of Jesus are the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are not really histories in the sense that anyone today would think of them, uh, would think of as history. Now, secular, non-Christian, non-confessing Bible scholars insist that to discover the real Jesus, it is necessary to set aside any ideas of the supernatural or of belief in God. I don't think, in the end, such an approach leads to where they think it does. But I do think it is maybe a good place to begin. It seems to me that beginning at the simplest, uh, most elemental level of what we can know about this stranger from Nazareth, what we can be most certain of about Jesus, is a good place to begin. Here is what I mean. Nothing the New Testament says about what Jesus said or did can be proven or disproven as absolute fact. It may sound more or less believable, 
but it cannot be proven either way. The problem with all historical studies is that with the passage of time, original events and words are no longer available to be weighed, analyzed, or evaluated. Even if an audiovisual recording has been made, it is not an event or a saying itself that we've captured. All we really have is a recording which still requires interpretation. What we have, all we have, as far as the biblical narratives of Jesus are concerned, are the impressions, thoughts, feelings, interpretations, and perceptions of what the closest friends and followers of Jesus had and shared of their encounter with Jesus. So, beginning at this very basic and simple level, what I can say I know about Jesus, about this stranger I meet on the road, is this. First, I can confidently say those nearest Jesus thought he was one of them. A peasant Jew born in Bethlehem 4 or 5 BCE and raised in Nazareth. Every now and then, of course, someone comes up with the theory that no such person ever existed. The eminent scholar Larry Hurtado, who was the director of the Center for Christian Origins at the prestigious University of Edinburgh in Scotland, referred to such notions as zombie theories, ideas that no matter how many times or thoroughly scholars, both liberal and conservative, disprove, they, they just keep coming back like dead zombies reanimated, kind of like crazy conspiracy theories that keep circulating. Judaism and Christianity are historic faiths, meaning they are tied more to historic events than they are to ideas and concepts. If there is no Jesus, there is no Christianity, which is, of course, precisely why every now and then someone wants to shout, Jesus never existed. They want to shout that because they don't want there to be any Christianity. But for certain, there were a lot of people in the first century Israel who thought Jesus was a real person they had met. A second thing I can safely say is that Jesus' friends and followers undoubtedly recognized him as a person of profound wisdom, not in the sense of the traveling or itinerant philosophers trained in rhetoric, which were not uncommon uh, in the great cities of that time, nor in some magical, surreal sense like a wizard or even a rabbi of superior intelligence and learning but wise in the ancient Hebrew tradition of Psalms 1, a sage or a prophet who prayerfully meditating on Scripture day and night has internalized the Torah and in doing so has 
acquired an uncanny and practical insight into life and reality. In fact, to be wise in the biblical sense is to have keen insight into life, to see things as they really are, and then to act accordingly. There's also another significant aspect to wisdom. In the ancient world, wisdom, morality, and ethics were not separated. So to be wise was also to be a just, honorable, and good person. Those social scientists who study human moral development have discovered a number of interesting correlations between human moral development and wisdom. For example, they have discovered that someone's level of moral development cannot be determined merely by what they do or say they would do in a given situation. An individual stage of moral development can only be determined by understanding the thinking, the reasoning that lies behind what they do or say they would do. Furthermore, the researchers tell us those at the highest levels of moral development think in terms of universal principles or values like love one another, do to others as you would have others do to you, practice justice, love, mercy, and walk humbly through this life. Their thinking is often counterintuitive, filled with moral reversals and always rooted in a simple goodness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Or blessed are those who mourn. Interestingly, there are apparently so few people at this level of moral development that it is extremely difficult for researchers to study. My point is simply this, that the men and women who encountered Jesus found him to be such a person, felt themselves to be in the presence of someone unconditionally accepting, someone with a pure heart, a kind spirit, and decidedly countercultural. Viktor Frankl, the Jewish psychiatrist who survived four years in a Nazi death camp, once said in dismissing all the praise that had been uh, heaped uh, on him, those of us who survived, those of us who survived, know that the best of us did not come back. The best of us, he said, gave their last crust of bread so that someone else could survive one more day. What must be kept in mind, of course, is not only whether someone gave their last crust of bread, but why? If I genuinely understand why the best of the death camp prisoners gave away their last crust of bread, I'm on my way to understanding 
the true nature of wisdom. So I know Jesus was a Jewish sage, a person of profound wisdom. I'll come back to this later in examining what I may believe if I trust scripture even just a little. But for now, I want to stay focused on what I can know of Jesus just by thinking about the impressions of those uh, that those closest to him had. A third thing I know for certain is that Jesus was experienced as a prophet. Uh, like he was experienced like the great prophets of Israel. And that carries a number of very large implications. The prophets were people who believed they had been given a message that did not come from their own mind. The earliest followers of Jesus in recognizing Jesus as a prophet followed him for this very reason. That is, they believed he was the bearer of a message from God. Someone may, of course, not believe at all that Jesus carried or sought to communicate a divine message from God. But his friends and followers certainly thought that he did. Another characteristic of the prophets was that their great concern was with the plight of humanity rather than lofty metaphysical ideas. They just were not terribly interested in abstract, esoteric, philosophical, or quasi-religious slash psychological concepts. They denounced vices with very practical social consequences like greed, power, and violence. The great modern Jewish scholar, rabbi, and mystic Abraham Joshua Heschel noted that the things that horrified the prophets are even now, today, occurrences all over the world. There is no society, he said, in which the prophet Amos's words would not apply. Then he goes on and, and quotes uh, Amos, who accuses the wealthy of trampling the needy, not giving the full measure of grain purchased, unfair pricing, using dishonest scales, mixing in the sweepings of chaffs, chaff and, and dust to increase the bulk and weight of the sacks of wheat and of predatory lending practices. The prophet's task, said Heschel, is to convey a divine point of view. That, I think, is to say that the divine view and message is communicated in the words and in the very life of the prophet. Jesus was seen then as a prophet along the lines of the great classical prophets of Israel. Like them, Jesus called for the practice of social justice and compassion among his people and predicted awful consequences if they failed to do so. In that regard, his friends believed him, like the prophets of old, to have an uncanny sense, a consciousness, an awareness or insight into where history was going. 
into what the future might hold. Because prophets addressing a wide range of, or address a wide range of economic and social concerns, they were also regarded as what we might think of as political figures. The word politics itself comes from the Greek word polis, which originally referred to the city, uh, to the to the citizens or body of people constituting a Greek city-state where religious, political, economic, and cultural concerns were all intertwined with one another. This, however, must not be understood to mean Jesus was merely a 21st century activist dressed in a first century tunic. The difference between Jesus as an ancient Hebrew prophet and the equivalent of a 21st century activist can be seen like this. A modern or postmodern activist believes human reasoning alone reveals certain principles by which people ought to live their life together. The prophets believed that what God does, says, and is determines what humanity ought to be. What someone says, does, or is, grammatically, is known as the indicative mood. The appropriate response to what has been said or done, or to what is, is expressed grammatically in the imperative mood. In theology, there's a, a very old principle, which says that for Jews and Christians, the imperative always arises out of the indicative. What is morally and ethically required of us? The imperative is derived from the nature or character, the indicative of God, from what God is. The prophets were people who sought at a very deep level to align themselves with the concerns and purposes of God and to live out in their own lives the attributes found in the divine nature. The prophets urged the pursuit of justice, peace, and compassion because they believed that the very nature of reality, the character of God, is love peace, and justice. Ultimately, the prophets insisted that what is crucial, what is absolutely central, what is of the highest good is not money or power or status, but the knowledge of God. I'm thinking, of course, of passages like Jeremiah 9.24, uh, which uh, says that if anyone wants to boast in, in anything, it shouldn't be their wealth or their power or their intelligence, but in the fact that they know and understand God. So to say Jesus was thought to be a prophet like the prophets of old was to say uh, quite a lot. We can also be confident Jesus, although without formal training, was recognized and honored as a teacher and rabbi by a small circle of students or disciples that gathered around him, as well as by many of the common people. 
as a rabbi or teacher, even in this uh, unofficial sense, uh, even though one without formal training, Jesus' task was to not only explain the divine will as given in Scripture, but to do so in such a way as to make it possible to live its meaning. That Jesus was acknowledged as a teacher also tells us something about both his intellectual and spiritual practice. That he prayed scripture, memorized scripture, recited scripture, meditated on and contemplated scripture, and embodied its reality in his own life. The great modern Jewish scholar, mystic, and teacher Martin Buber once said something like this. He said, good teachers are those who allow their students to participate in their life and so discover the secret of the doing. That's the sort of teacher Jesus' students believed him to be. In recognizing Jesus as sage, prophet, and teacher, his friends and followers were also recognizing him as what in most religious traditions is meant by a holy person. Someone with extraordinary spiritual insight. Marcus Borg, a popular religion author and professor, spent most of his life refuting Orthodox Christianity. Yet he referred to Jesus as a spirit person. Following the line I have begun here, I would say that among the things I am certain about in regard to Jesus is that his followers and friends saw him as someone unique in the depth of his religious faith, devotional practice, and spiritual awareness. That is all the time I have right now, but I will continue with this idea of meeting Jesus on the road in the next podcast.